Jen, it's your birthday. It is my birthday. Happy birthday, Thank friend. You. I um, woke up this morning and Mr. Reed's romance had, like, flowers magically appeared in my kitchen overnight. And it was really nice. And then I asked him. Little fairies. Like, he he hired fairies. Yes. And I said, like, where were you hiding these? And then he was so cute. And he said, I have my places. Mm -hmm. Well, that seems like a really nice, joyful way of beginning your day. It was really nice. So we were going to go out in the middle of the day and do something, but it has been raining here all day, so we didn't go anywhere. And instead, I have been literally just laying around reading historicals, and it's great. I'm for it. Me too. Uh, welcome, everybody, to Faded Mates. It's Jen's birthday, but we also have Adriana Herrera here today. So one of our... Adriana, I was trying to figure out how many times you've been on. How close are you to, pink, to your pink lady jacket? That's what we need to know. I feel like I should be getting it in the mail this week. Everybody feels that way when they go. People love us and want to be part of our crew. Sure. But (laughs) wait, is this four? Is this the fourth time? It's got to be that. Well, there was Bowen and Mariquetta. Right. Yeah. Bowen, the the famous famous Bowen is my fuckboy episode. Mm. He still still is, even after all this time. Um, Yeah, the food episode. The food episode. And then I. My God, which was you were a little baby. You were just. That was when your debut came out. And now you're on the Publishers Weekly Best Romance of the Year list. Uh, For a pegging romance, too. (laughs) I really am proud of that. Uh, It's it's just a synthesis of all the things we love. Mm. So. Congratulations, Adriana. Thank you. On being on the Publishers Weekly Best of the Year list. Pretty awesome. And well-deserved. And unexpected, because if I was going to get it, it, I did not think it was going to be for the book that I put a pegging scene in. Normalize pegging at all costs, as our friend Aida says. (laughs) We'll put links in show notes to our favorite Publishers Weekly is on brand with this message, and it's just their way of letting us know. Exactly. Um, Wait, so then there was, so, okay, there was the food romance interstitial, which was a million years ago when we were all younger. Um, And then you've been on again. Yeah, I did the one with, well, Jen and I did that chat about trauma, and then that went up. So this is four. One more and you get your jacket. (laughs) Well, let's get on the schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Um... And Jen, do you want to tell everybody who you are? Oh, I'm Sarah McLean. I write romance novels and I read them. I'm Jennifer Prokop. I am celebrating a birthday that is freaking me out. It's fine. I am a romance reader and critic and a person who lays around and reads historicals all day on a rainy day on your birthday. That's who, who I am. Jen, would you like to tell everybody how old you are? No. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I am 47. That's how old I am. Kelly and I were talking this morning about, like, when our... Okay, my mom doesn't listen to everyone, so it's fine. But she was... I hope... Please turn off... Turn it off now, Mom, if you are listening to this one. Um, she... Kelly said, you know, when our moms were 47, we were, like, graduating from college, right? Because they had us so much younger. And she's like, they just seem so much older than we do now. And I was like, that's true. No, you're young and spry. Very cool. 
I'm very cool. Yeah. Hosting phone banking sessions. Yes. Everyone, if you haven't joined us uh, this coming yeah, one more time. Saturday, Halloween at 3 p.m. Eastern, we'll be phone banking for Jen's birthday. I negotiated us phone banking Ohio, her home state. I'm very excited. Because something's up down there in Ohio or up there or over there in Ohio. We think you should come dressed as your favorite romance character. I am just going to brandish a, um, like a water pistol, but drape a mantilla over my head and be (laughs) Jessica Trent. Yes. Well, I think you might have, Adriana might, uh, (laughs) give you a run for your money there. We can all do that. That idea is for everyone. Yeah. I have deemed them the Rihanna and Drake of the Regency, and I will stick to that until forever. Until forever. Mantilla's for everyone. Mantilla's like for to everyone. Say. Yes. Uh, I did a, um, a an event, a, a panel with Loretta the other day, where we talked about old school romances and like how they how they continue to resonate, and you know how you can negotiate this kind of new world with a love of old school romances. And she is, she's just the perfect person on top of having written the perfect romance novel. So, so it's really nice whenever you spend time with a romance, with a, a romance novelist who you've loved your whole life and you're like, oh, you're just as amazing as Sarah, you would that's be. how I feel every week when we record. Oh my God, you're so full of shit, but <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, wait, so, but it is still Joy Month because this episode will release, oh my gosh. October like, 28th. It will release, yeah. release uh, six days before the election. So it's almost here, you guys. <laughs> it's home stretch. And uh, as you all know, we've been talking about Joy a lot. And when we proposed that Adriana join us for this, the last episode of Fatal Mates before the election, uh, she made she knew exactly what she wanted to talk about. So, Adriana, do you want to talk to everybody about what we're talking about? Yes. I wanted to talk about romances um, that have own voices, immigrant stories. And so romance that focuses on immigrant joy, on people who came to this country to pursue their American dream, finding love and walking into a beautiful future together is what I wanted to talk because we have lots of it and romance and we're doing it in a way that I don't think anyone else is doing it in the literary space, not how we're doing it in romance. No, it feels like immigrant stories in the literary space are about trauma. And I feel like saying that to you means, like, I, because you're a trauma specialist, like, I use that word not lightly with you. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, I wrote a piece about it last year for Bustle, and, and it was thinking about just how uniquely we do the immigrant story. Was it Bustle? Well, I've done, I did two. I did one for Remezcla, and that one was, like, about Afro-Latinx identity specifically, and then I did one for Bustle, which was basically kind of like really talking about how it is really unique the way that we do the immigrant story, specifically because we don't use the trauma, like like the trauma of the immigrant experience as like the starting point for where we take our stories. And I think especially, I mean, I think it's especially resonant 
in these last four years. But, you know, like for anyone living in the U.S. who is a person aware of the world, like having stories of people who are in the, on the margins experiencing joy is, I think, really like radical right now. Often in a um, interstitial, there's sort of a like bargaining over kind of who's going to talk about what book um or you know we sort of like plan like okay these are the ones I want to talk about and in this case this is like the unusual experience for me at least of every book that's sort of on the list is a book I've read Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so I think it will be it might feel a little different because I don't think it's going to have that like same structure of like okay this is the book I want to talk about and um, I think that, so I just want to, like, point that out if, as we're talking, like, it's not sort of like my book, because it's going to be, like, I think all of our books. But one thing I was thinking about is, um, I was thinking a lot about uh, this, because I actually teach a, a book to my seventh graders called The Shadow Hero, which is a graphic novel by Jean Yang. Um, that is a, essentially a, the second generation Um, his parents come over from China in, like, 1910, 1915, which is, um, when my grandparents were born, right? So this is, and then the the book itself takes place in the 30s, but it's really, like, a second-generation story. And I was, one of the things I was thinking about is I was thinking about, like, the books that we are going to talk about today is a lot of the books are kind of second-generation stories. Um, and I, And I think that's just really interesting because I think it's really um, evaluating the American dream in a way that's really different because you're sort of in the position, like in the pole position almost of like, my parents brought me here, but now I get to decide what to make of my life here. And I didn't know if you had some insight on... um, or it's like thoughts on like on that do you think that's true like that it's a lot of them are second generation yeah and i mean it's interesting um that you are talking about that i there's this other podcast i'm not cheating it's completely unrelated to romance i'm not (laughs) cheating (laughs) it's okay (laughs) name and shame (laughs) it's called on being and it's i've been listening to it for years it's a book it's a podcast where they the Krista Tippett's the name of the person that um, hosts it, and she brings poets, philosophers, thinkers um, on, and they talk about like faith, spirituality, the experience, like the human experience. But anyway, she had Ocean Vuong the there um, to her show maybe in July, and he is Vietnamese um, immigrant, came here as a child with his mother, so he's actually like he's like. An immigrant himself. He's yeah, born, he was born. born in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But he came so young that he's basically kind of like first generation. And one of the things that he talked about was, um, you know, he's a very he's very young, but he's like one of those people that just sounds so wise. He's just like he's, he's I mean, if you haven't read him, it's not romance, but like um, you said he's a poet. I mean, of course, old souls. He wrote a novel last year called On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, which is just phenomenal. But he was saying something that's really that really spoke to me. And it was his mother was a nail salon technician. And 
she died of cancer last year. But before she died, he was already becoming like he was gaining notoriety. He is, his work has already gotten a lot of accolades. So he brought her to a place where he was reading front poetry. And she, at the end of it, she was like, you know, she was so proud of him. He brought her up and people like applauded and stuff. And he, she told him like all these white people were standing up and cheering for you. Like all these old white people, right? And he said, well, what kind of accomplishment is that? Like he was kind of like, what kind of accomplishments like white people thinking I'm amazing? <laughs> and the next day he was at the nail salon with her and he realized she was always kneeling in front of white people. She spent her days not at eye level. Right. Right? I get emotional just like thinking about it. And he had that realization of me pursuing this identity of me dis- like dismissing the need for approval of whiteness it's kind of breaking my mother's heart in a way. Like I'm like me going off on my own and doing this is me divorcing myself from the American dream she came to pursue. Mm-hmm. And so am I going off on a crazy tangent? I think no, it's no. like it's, but it's to me like part of the idea of the second generation story, the first generation story of finding love and how different that looks than from what our parents come here to pursue. And I'm not first generation. I came here on my own when I came here as an adult. But thinking of my cousins who did were born here and my aunts came, they they like it was they lived their homes lived by the rules of what Dominican Republic was in 1965. Yes. In like 1988, 1989, 1992, they were stuck in like a time warp. And so for them to set out into the world, they had to break Break, their parents' hearts. And I think, but then that's the pursuit. But they, and, and like, I think that's what's the beauty of the immigrant romance story because we can show that we can show those different love stories, not just the love story, because so much of like the immigrant story romance is those familial relationships and how you reconcile being an American and then, you know, pursuing your own version of your American dream or American love story. Well, there is such a Adriana and I have talked about this, but I, so I am a first generation American and there is this, there is a very real sense of um, kind of feeling that when you're a first generation, uh, meaning I've, I was born in America, but my parents were not, and they came here when they were older, and they chose to stay here and have children here and build a family here away from their families in other places, right? So there is a very real sense of both isolationism, like there are, there's an isolation from that that kind of dominant family culture, right? Like this, I speak fluent Italian, but it's not my culture, but then on top of it, there's this Amer- because there's this Americanization that comes with being a first generation Am- American and this push pull of identity where you both want to you are both sort of pulled toward this fantasy of what the culture that 
of what home was for your parents and for your extended family and what home is for you. And there's, those are two very different things. There, there, you feel slightly without country more often than you would, would expect. And so I think for me, these immigrant, the, the immigrant love stories that obviously speak the most to me are the ones that are about first generation Americans, because I, I see myself in them and I see the fight that you always have with your parents um, you know, the number of times that my mother has said, like, I, you know, it's important to me that, like, tradition is upheld or the number of times that my father, like, would be disappointed if I, like, mispronounced an Italian word or, like, used the wrong verb, you know, because because it fe- the weight of it is so powerful. But then at the same time, you are such a different person than they are. They don't there is always a sense of misunderstanding. And I often wonder, like, I think it took me until I was you know, 40 years old to understand that that sense of misunderstanding isn't, isn't all, I think all children are slightly misunderstood by parents, but I think for us, it's a totally different kind of misunderstanding. There's such a desperate need to grasp on, to not lose where you came from. And there's, it's panic on the part of parents, I think. Yes. Because there's, and I can only imagine, right? I have a you know, we all have children and you spend so much time as a parent sort of thinking, oh God, am I doing it right? Mm -hmm. Like, am I ruining them? Right. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine how that must feel when you're like, not only am I, when you don't, when you have that constant sense of, am I doing it right? On top of, and I chose to take them away from, to do this away from everyone else. I mean, it's it's almost like, and I've and I've been thinking about this a lot um, because, like, the romance piece of it, and thinking it's that it's that need to be seen, right? You need, like, you need to be seen, and for us, like, for me, like, my daughter doesn't know like what it was to be growing up in the Dominican Republic. Like, she doesn't know like what it is to be from a country with like 10 million people and to see like your flag on television because some Dominican man is in the like baseball hall of fame. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and, and that piece of like finding a person that is having that same experience, even if they're coming from different places, like your parents, um, Sarah, were both immigrants. They both came on their own. And from different places, too. So I have a different experience. And that then sh- that shared, that commonality of, like, yeah, I'm from another place, and I always feel untethered. Like, that is, like, that has to be something, like, that shorthand of, of that experience has to be a powerful thing, bringing people together. Yeah, and also, I mean, your books, too, do this remarkable work that I think is really interesting that of building, we've talked so many times, Jen, on the podcast about like the found family, right? Like who, who your family is and who, and how it's built. And for immigrants, often family is piecemealed from other immigrants, right? So it's about language, like, and I always get the sense in some cases with my parents' friends, right, that it was like, we're just friends with those people because they speak Italian. Like, that was the, con- that was enough of a connection, which, I mean, is real and weird, I guess, for people who don't 
live that way. But that kind of the way a community is cobbled together for immigrants is really interesting. And but at the same time, it feels very Adriana and I were talking about this last week. It feels like you're also really unpeeling your real self when you find these people. Like suddenly you're free of the burdens of whatever came before. And I mean, I, I, my parents left for whatever reasons they left. Adriana left for whatever reason she left. Like everybody has their reason, but that choice to really leave, you know, as I, as you've said so many times, Adriana, like you, you grew up on an island, like you chose to leave. You didn't just like wander into the United States. No. And I mean, I think it's also the, like you wear your culture differently here. Um, and, and you assume your nationality differently here. And it's the sad, tragic thing of, um, what this country does to people when it comes to white supremacy, because it really steals from us the ability to build bridges around that commonality, right? Like we arrive and, you know, our race, our skin color really kind of like boxes us into different spaces, into different types of immigrants. Um, and I think it robs, uh, cause I, I remember talking to you last week and you talking about your dad's, like how his, how he came. And I was like, his reasons seem very similar to the, my reasons for leaving the DR and like that bittersweet of like, nobody wants to leave where they're from. You usually have to for whatever reason. And sometimes it's not like political, like, you know, it's not a civil war. Sometimes it's just like, you can't stand your family. And, and like, and then the, the, the sadness is that we all arrive here and then we're disbanded into like our places where we like belong, um, quote unquote. And it's, and it robs us of that, like, um, ability to all kind of like gather and figure out how, how we like how we're all more like like our similar experience, I guess, is what I was trying to say. But yeah, so love when you add love to it, it's this really remarkable thing because it almost strips away all of the other bits, like all of the trappings, and you fall in love with the real person. It's a really wild way of thinking about how much love stories for immigrants are really about like two halves of a whole finding each other. And it feels, I would say like an aspect of it for me is like, it feels even more miraculous, right? Like, I mean, if you think about like the journey of like thousands of miles to be in like, you know, you ended up in this town and this person was there. I mean, right. So it actually even adds to me like a sense of like that magic gets layered back in. Oh yeah. Right. Like if I, if, if my grandparents had not left or if you had not left, would you have found each other? And I think, um, there's a way in which, you know, if it's just people meeting at the office, like that doesn't feel that way. But a lot of times these stories really feel like there's like, wow, there is something bigger out there, like, drawing us together and pulling us close. And I think that's something really beautiful that a lot of times these stories capture, like, just how miraculous it was that in this planet of 7 billion people, we found each other. 
one of the things we do a lot in like the in like trauma field is like once you're able to think to talk about your traumatic experiences, then part of the work is making meaning of it, right? Because you have to live with it. So you have to make meaning. Because if you don't make meaning, then you can't let go. It has to make sense within the context of your life, even senseless things, but like at least the healing has to be part of how you make meaning. So I like thinking a lot of how romance does it is that romance allows immigrant stories to be about the making meaning part because they become like the the what you left behind becomes part of the journey that you took to find that healing relationship or that perfect person or that soulmate and it really allows us to like lean into like the beautiful parts of like bad shit happened before but like I'm like within the context of me finding this love then I can make meaning of it, right? And I think that's like what we do really well. And I think is, I honestly, I mean, of course, like I'm a romance reader, I'm a romance author, I think a lot about romance, but I think of like the way you build bridges around empathy, I think is is the, the, the like truly the superpower of romance because we are using the basic feelings that everybody wants to feel. And we are using it to like build bridges between readers who may not have had the experiences that these people have had. And, and I think in certain ways, it really does do so much work as opposed to like trauma, because like, I'm going to talk about American Dirt, but just for like a minute, like American Dirt, may be a really moving book, but for your average suburban wife um, in, like, Minnesota, I don't know what's going on in Minnesota. This is just a random place, I think. <laughs> but um, you can read that and be detached from that experience because that would never happen to you. It would, like, you know, like, your average, like, Becky and the Burbs, like, you know, having to walk from... Veracruz or wherever this woman came from in this very unrealistic story, which has nothing to do with reality, is you can read that and feel outraged and disgusted and all these things, but you're separated from that experience. But falling in love in whichever way you fall in love with whoever person you fall in love, that feeling is common to all of us. And that can let us, like, that allows us to go into that person's experience in a different way. But it's because we bring it, because these things, I mean, when we talk about, you know, these things, we're talking about things that are like deeply human, right? Like we're talking about like needs, like biological and like emotional needs and that we can all, we all have, and so when we talk about things that bring us joy, you know, we talk about it is love and it is family and many, or, you know, what in, however we call that thing that is family. And it is, you know, warm food and families like, at a potluck a and great yeah. book, right. like, th- like, you know, television shows that move us or movies that we love or music like these are all things that are cultural 
that change from culture to culture, but they're not, it's not different, right? In the sense that we can all, we all have that one thing. And so when we talk about romance, right, for, for what, six weeks we've been talking about, like, it's, I keep saying, like, it's, it's about joy, it's about joy, it's about joy. But that cornerstone of, you know, what, what Andriana said earlier, that in itself is so transformational, this idea that joy has value, like the kind of value that we're talking about now in 2020 as like value for humanity. Joy is the prime. Like, what if we start thinking about joy as the paramount thing? And that's what romance delivers, right? And and hope, like really like hope, like hopeful people, like people that can think this is going to work out. Like we're going to do this. And heroic, like There is such heroism in, like, we talk all the time about heroes, like, bravery being this quality that we look for in a heroine or in a hero. Like, that's a a quality that's aspirational for us as readers. Like, there is nothing more brave than, like, closing the door on your past and, like, moving forward into an empty future. Like, who knows what the fuck is over there on the other side of the ocean or like, you know, on the other side of the river. And that's a pretty amazing, that bravery, again, sort of just, it fires cylinders for readers, I think, that maybe readers don't even notice are being fired. Yeah. But there's, it makes for a really heroic character. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think the piece about it is like someone that yearns and someone that leaves with hope, like leads with hope. And, and immigrants lead with hope. We can't lose it. We can't afford to. Like, we can't afford to not be hopeful because we really are leaving everything behind. And so that's like the North Star for an immigrant. And so it's a person that's really like, like, like they're up for anything. Yeah. Yeah. So can we talk a a little bit more about the bride test? Should we talk some books? I know. We talked about, like, mentioned some books. I mean, but... I mean, I could do this for an hour, but... I could, but I I think it's interesting to, like, sort of set the stage. Like, what do we think these books are doing? But for me, it's like the books themselves all do have some, like, commonalities. And one of them is, like, the hope, but also, like, we were talking about, like, you talked at the beginning about, like, sort of breaking your parents' hearts. But I do feel like in so many of these books, the parents are an active, like, proud, like, I, you want something different than I wanted, but I still want it for you because you want it. And I find that, like, hope of the family to be a really big part of it. And I think the bride test is not really a second generation story she literally is she's new she is brand new and i um so this is by helen wong and um esme is literally cleaning toilets in a like ho chi minh city right i think and kai's mom is you know he's lives in california and his mom has come over to sort of like search for a bride for him and she doesn't want any of the the girl's, like, trying out for it, right? She wants someone who shares, I think, her own heart, like, work ethic. And work that's, ethic, right? yes. It's like, yep. I want someone who, is like, is going to work as hard as I worked. That's what I want for my son. And so when she offers, essentially, Esme, like, come and spend the summer, 
it really is about like this mutual respect between these women about what it takes to make it in America and what it's going to take to be a good wife to my son. And she is, Esme is already a mother and leaves her daughter behind with her own mother to like take this wild shot at like, again, the hope of a better life. And I love this book a, a whole lot. Yeah. In my practice, mo- like 75% of my clients are immigrant women. I have children who are immigrant too, but um, immigrant women, mostly all Spanish speakers. All, um, I only see Spanish speaking clients. And, you know, a lot of them have come like with a fiance visa and things don't work out well. And so it's a pattern, it's something that I see as a, this pattern of people exploiting poverty and need in other countries and bringing women who are then trapped in a relationship that is not good. And so for me, reading The Bride Test was like, ah, this is what I would love for all of my clients to be able to come here and end up finding someone, you know, with the interference of family members (laughs) who was really perfect for her and who loved her and who saw her as perfection. And so that's, and again, that's like the joy of the romance, that like the romance book is that, I could read the kind of story that I would like to see for everybody that comes here and takes that chance, that takes that chance that they're going to come here and find someone that really is who they're supposed to be with, that's going to give them a better life. And, and I mean, the things that Helen did with that book that I appreciated, and she did it somewhat with the Kiss Quotient, although the heroine is like, I could never really get, like, figure out her ethnicity, but with what she did with this book too is the family dynamic and that thrust, um, and not the fun kind of thrust that we talk about in <laughs> um, that thrust between the culture, the tradition, and the breaking up that the breaking of that culture and making it into something new. And the thrust that is between the old like the older generation and the newer generation and the, but the burden of that, right? Because both um, in the kiss quotient and in this book, the younger people felt such an obligation, such a responsibility to live up to the, to the sacrifices of single mothers, both of the heroes in these books. And that's, not, that's a theme that comes up in my books constantly is the, the, the mother, the immigrant woman who comes to this country and ends up raising her children on her own and what that means to the child. That despite needing to break off and do your own thing, you have that person that has been everything to you, that literally has meant your survival. And the complexities of that, the intensity of those relationships, which, you know, you can find in other types of books with like a mother, let's say a single mom, of course, or, um, you know, a mother, like a, a child has survived 
in a domestic violence or something like that. But that that story of the immigrant woman who raises her children here against all odds, like the intensity of that relationship is something that honestly, like, romance does amazingly and really honors that, you know, really honors that that bond between like a son like i wrote that all the dreamers were like they these men and their mothers and it's it's the bond that happens um in that type of relationship where you really are it's just you and your kid i really want to talk about one of the most my most favorite things about the bride test is actually something really amazing she does with language and that is and i don't I don't know that I've ever seen this in another book. Maybe it's more common than I think. But Esme, when she speaks words, like Vietnamese words, mm-hmm. they're diacritical marks. And when those same words are spoken by the, like, second generation by Kai and his family, they aren't there. It's fa- I noticed that, too, and it is so smart. It's so smart for communicating that, like, even though they all are, like, Vietnamese, their relationship with their language and their culture is different based on how long they've been in the country. And I, when I was reading it, I was like, this is so smart because even though these words are the same, they're different. Yes. And I will become more and more different. I mean, yes. And there's something uh, really bittersweet. I mean, Helen is a tremendous writer. I mean, if you've not read either of Helen's books, go out and do that immediately. She is really like, I mean, she's one of the best there is. Um, And I think that choice echoes what we were talking about earlier with like this sense of just bittersweetness and also this sense of um, and and you feel it in the Kiss Quotient, and you feel it in other books too. Like you feel it in Nisha Sharma's books with the Sing the Sing tri- trilogy books, where it's a first generation. Those are first generation kids, um, right? I think so. They, yeah, they're born here. Yeah, and so um, and you feel that bittersweetness, that sense of like the expectation. And whether or not that's what they want is what the parents want versus what the children what the children want, and then on top of it, this layer of like wanting to do right for your parents, but also wanting to be yourself. I mean, this is a this is a conversation that is had over and over in books. I'm thinking. I mean, both of the ones that I'm thinking about right now are um, Anisha's The Takeover Effect where the heroine is basically like she just wants she wants her life for herself and she's willing to agree to an arranged marriage for it um and um you know and sonali dev too is always looking at these conversations is always sort of noodling these conversations about expectation in india versus reality in america and those are really fascinating push pushes and pulls. The bright test, I think, like it, I mean, it's everything. Like she, ta- like she looks into like how mental illnesses look is seen, how um, you know being like the autism spectrum is is looked at, and the real differences that you know you have here as opposed to there. Like I think 
because she does it in a romance and we're so invested in these two people being able to be together, then people really can come along for the ride of like all those experiences and we give context, right? Like I think that's the thing about the the own voices immigrant story that is so unique because we have to world build our existence in this country as opposed to when you're writing just your just your average two like Caucasian people this world already belongs to them there's already context that exists there for them we have to build the scaffolding of our existence here and in a romance you get to do it in a way that's like also like pursuing that happy ending like I'm can we switch to the worst best yes, man? Yes, sure. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, because that's my, um, that's the book, I, one of the books I wanted to talk about. Oh, I think Mia's also like a brand, brand writer. I mean, full disclosure, she's like a good friend of mine. And, I, but I also have like a lot of respect for her as a person. Also, uh, it was announced today that the worst best man has just been optioned yes. for film which is super exciting. amazing and so well deserved because that book truly is perfect it's delightful yeah. it would oh yeah <laughs> it's one of the ones i sent to my sister-in-law i was like oh, it's so fun well she's late <laughs> why don't yes, people listen to like, me got it. <laughs> always it just listen to me sandra sarah mcclain novels next <laughs> she has all your books both of you <laughs> remember reading that book like she like Mia sent me an early copy and I remember reading it and texting her and being like this needs to be a movie right it's because it's great yeah it's perfect and the thing and I've talked me and I talk a lot about this because we are like two of the people that like write Afro-Latina heroines and we really try to explore blackness in the Latinx experience in our books and our characters and the thing about the worst best man too is like Lena is also one of those people who is like unli- like you know she could be classified as the unlikable heroine because she's so uptight, mm-hmm. she's so like you know driven, so type A, but like in the story we see the context of the world yeah. that she comes from and like we get why she's like that because being like who she is she has to be contained Mm -hmm. and and the beauty of it for me honestly like and that's like the true like the greatness of being able to be a romance reader is to see my experience in 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 lena's experience Mm -hmm. and in a joyful way right? right i don't have to be like clenching my molars waiting for when she's gonna get killed right. or when she's gonna be devastated by something or whatever because I know that in this romance she's gonna get a happy ending and I can like see my experience mirror like know that I'm a Latina I'm a black woman I'm in this navigating this world that is constantly putting assumptions and expectations on me that don't fit with who I am and being able to read it within like a book where there's like hot sex. You're and, gonna be taken care of. I'm gonna be taken care of and Max is gonna like <laughs> do his magic and it's gonna be amazing. <laughs> but I mean I think that's why these stories, right? Like the the pact with 
but the pact between author and reader and romance is we're going to take care of you, right? And so, therefore, like, an Im- it's not going to be an American Dirt experience where your background is going to be used as a prop for trauma, right? And if, you know, it's not that no bad things will happen, but it's that, like, the promise is, you know, I mean, Lena actually is really under a lot of stress in terms of, right, like, financially and, you know, am I going to keep be able to keep my office if I don't get this next job, How right? Like, her, it's not that her life is perfect, right? She is, but we understand that she has the tools to be successful herself, And that, you know, that Mia as an author is going to take care of us as readers and not use that experience to just create further trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, the other thing that I, like, just going back to that idea that all voices immigrant stories, I think you can write an immigrant story, right? Like, you can be anybody and write a book about some Mexican person. But, like, the thing that, own voices can do is that anything we can make we can give meaning to things in a way that is that is like there's texture to it like and I don't know if that makes sense but like even food is not just food because you read a lot of books where like food is a way to like present culture right like you know oh I went to like Morocco and I ate this food let me write a Moroccan hero yeah but that's not how that works yeah yeah okay which is okay but it's not going to be the same as someone writing about a specific thing that they eat or that they have as like part of like what makes them who they are. Right. Like the 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 memory that's part of it. The yes. the the DNA. Have is you guys in there. seen the cultural iceberg? Have you seen this? So this is something no. we use in teaching when we talk about sort of culture. And essentially it's like a it's a picture of an iceberg, oh, yes. right? And the top is like, okay, here are the things of culture you can see. Right? And it's like food and dress and language, right? And right. And then and it's just like a tiny part of the iceberg. And then underneath are all of the other things that drive a culture, right? How you mourn people who have died, how you go to school, your interactions with your parents, right? I mean, you know, and, and it's so it really and that's the thing, like sometimes you know, an own voices immigrant story is so it can it understands the whole iceberg, not just the well, top. and on top of it, in America in 2020, telling the own voices immigrant story is a lot about combating this idea that the iceberg is only the top right. bit of the iceberg, right? I think about Zoe Castile's hired, which is a male uh Escort. So Zoe Castile is also Zoraida Cordova, and uh, and he is a male escort, and he is Latinx, and she basically flips the whole script on Latin Lover there, like, and she does it. I mean, like, first of all, I think these books, I think that whole series is just bananas sexy and it's really fun, and it's each really fun. One, yeah, um, each one sort of tackles a different part of like sex work and he's an escort and Jen and I are deeply on the record for being pro escort romances. Um, but really, but Zoe is so intentional there in this, 
And she really, in a powerful way, says movies, <laughs> what you think of as being like, you know, the film, you know, Latin lover is nothing like what, what it is like to be a man in the world who is also Latinx. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I talked to her for that bustle piece and we talked about her, her intention around really like, she's like, I know what the stereotypes are and my job is to write against them because I need to like dismantle these stereotypes. Well, she also took on a very like, this is not this this stereotype for this series was so smartly yeah. addressed. I'm sorry I cut you off though. No, I was gonna say that she also did the Latin Maid because the last book in that series is like a ta- like a Beauty and the Beast retelling, but also like you know it's um flashed. Is flash. She's she's a Latina. She's goes and like works you know, ends up working as, like, this wealthy guy's housekeeper and also exploring, like, how does, you know, like, we're not just, like, vessels, right? Like, there's a reason why you're there. So I think it's... And that's the beauty of having an understanding of what it is to live with the burden of a certain stereotype because then you know how to undo it because you know where the fault lines so are. So how much, Adriana, do you feel like that's... I- it is that is not anyone's job off the bat to do this kind of intense like work on flipping flipping a stereotype um and obviously Zoraida chose that uh, wanted that took on that work how much do you feel like that work is something that you think about when you're writing i think about it a lot and I think about it a lot, especially especially in the Dreamer series. I think I intentionally set out to write that series as like there's work that I need to do to like render the Afro Latinx immigrant experience in the way that I think honors like who we are in this country and the value we bring. And I think it's like staking your like it's almost like staking your place uh, in the ground of saying like I get to say who we are and what we mean to this country, what we add. And so it's your story, right? Like, I think that's the piece. Like, I could write something that is the top of the iceberg, but then I'm not honoring my own story. I have to dig deeper because that's what presents who I really am. And I think... And I honestly think that's why the Dreamers series have connected with readers, because I think I had to make myself vulnerable and really explore all the different ways that being here can be for us. And, and like, looking at all the different sides and even thinking, like, I, I, wrote, I wrote this historical novella. Um, God. It's coming out at some point. Coming out in November. (laughs) Yeah. Soon, in like three weeks. Yes. And so it's set in 1879 in in London, but mostly, it starts in London, but it's mostly in Paris. And the heroine is Dominican British. And she is born and raised in the Caribbean, but her dad was a British diplomat that ended up going home after his, you know, he kind of went on a short stint to the Caribbean and came 20 years later with a family. 
thinking about this woman's experience, right? Like part of what I wanted to explore is like, it's really like, there's such a wide range of, of, of experiences. And like, we can't speak to anything in particular when it comes to like immigration or the immigrant experience. And just because I'm, I don't know, just because I'm a black woman in America right now doesn't mean that I understand what it's like to be in Nigeria today with SARS, you know, or whatever. And I think, I think we feel that differently when we're writing from own voices and we really understand that there needs to be like respect and regard for not taking on something that we don't like necessarily understand. A really interesting, um, I think it's Jeanette Ng, but I'm not sure. And I will dig this up out of my files. And one of the things that's like really interesting is then like the push pull of um, when white authors tackle immigrant stories that are not own voices they they do a lot of research and i don't and no one's saying like don't do that but one of the things this article points out is um if you are own voices you should not have to feel that like if you didn't do the research you didn't do it right right like research is this like double edged sword right and i thought it was like really interesting to point out that you know the maybe that it's just coming from a different place um but i think like the pressure to then you know the more stories we have the more immigrant stories we have the more own voices stories we have the less pressure there is on any one person to be the one voice and that those are conversations that often are happening you know they're not i'm i'm not a part of those conversations i don't i shouldn't be because you know people who are in that group are having the conversation like amongst themselves and the work is like kind of what pops out. But I think it's, these are comp, these are really complicated things to put yourself out there that way. It is complicated. I mean, thinking about like Soraida, like she's probably the only Ecuadorian woman I know who's writing romance, Um, you know? And so that's huge pressure, like, to know, like, you got to, like, rap for your people in a way that's, like, yeah. good. And nobody and, like, demands feel... that of white people. No. I mean, like, nobody no. has ever said, well, Sarah, you're not repping properly for English people. Like, right. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, I mean, and, and I think it's, like, we do it joyfully because we get to see ourselves. We get to be the ones who, like, with Mia's book, with The Worst Best Man, like, I don't know of any other Afro-Brazilian heroines in adult romance, not that I can think of, like, Afro, like, Black women. There there are Brazilian women in romances, but not, you know, not, they're white presenting. And so that is a different story. And... And that is response. Like, you know, even if you don't, it's, it's, it's not fair that it's there. It is, it is yours. And then again, at the same time, like it will be, it would be, it will be nice when we're able to just write the books. Yeah. There's a really interesting article, um, 
Now, again, like, it's like this, you know, I'm like, write whatever you want to write, but there's an interesting article, and it's by, um, she's a Native American author named Cynthia, I can't remember, she writes YA, and she was sort of like, when people ask me, like, okay, I want to write a Native American character, what should I do? She's like, okay, so the first thing you do is you read 100 books by own voices Native American authors. And and she, and her thing is, like, read 100 books, and then you can start to think about it. And the thing I keep thinking is, right, so, like, going back to your example about, like, Flashed, right, like, if there's one Ecuadorian author, there are not 100 books for you to read. And so, you know, it's let's let people who are Ecuadorian get there first. Like, let's let people who are, you know, and that's the part I think it's no one's taking anything away from you to say, like, let's let the the people get there first who who are own voices. Because if you can't name even 10 books, you know, I mean, sometimes people are like, oh, yeah, my hero is, you know, half Mexican, half Japanese. And I was like, that is so specific. <laughs> Right. Right. I mean, and I think like the, the, the thing about it is like that we contain multitudes. Right. And like the amount of ways that we can show identity, like I have um, no one steal this idea, but I have this, <laughs> this Sears idea. That, and I'm we're not, trademarking it. It's going to be yeah. pro cop McLean trademarked. Go ahead. I'm not expo- <laughs> I'm not exploring the story for any anytime soon, but it's a story I want to write. And it's about a Dominican Japanese hero. And so. In the in like 1951, the dictator of the Dominican Republic at that time, Rafael Leonidas Trujillo. Who, if you want to know about Trujillo, you can read about Trujillo. He was terrible, um, and he was obsessed with whitening the Dominican race. And so, a lot, he did a lot of things. But at this juncture in time, he was giving land to Japanese people who would come and homestead in the border between Dominican Republic and Haiti. So since 1951, there's been this community of Japanese Dominicans. And so there's these, I dated one. Um, (laughs) One of my college boyfriends was ethnically, Dominican, I'm ethnically Japanese Dominican, and he his their, his family's history was fascinating, and to think that like in 1951 his great grandparents came to the front like the border of the Dominican Republic in Haiti and started growing whatever stuff there like had a farm and. And he came, like, his brother came here to study, and then, like, we hung out a little bit once I came, and we became friends. And it was funny because he was dating a Dominican girl who was third generation, like, her, his um, second generation. So his her parents had been born here, and their grandparents were the ones that had come. And he was more Dominican than she was, but when they <laughs> went out, out, he looked Japanese. And so, like, I'm like... This is like I need to write this fucking book, but it's like this is this is what can't come out unless its own voices. You know what I mean? These are the types of stories that can't come out unless its own voices. No one's still my Japanese Dominican hero. Yeah. <laughs> We're not. Uh, yeah. Wait, but can we talk about finding joy? That's where I was. Dry- 
Sarah, I know. you and I are driving the same bus. I know. Fade to me. <laughs> because, I mean, talk about a magnificent story that where you have, you know, really unpacked the way that culture exists for immigrants, but exists for people who are for, for, um, for people who live, who have, you know, been born in that culture. And then the way that we find ourselves and our love of, and like rekindle our love for a culture through the eyes of other people. And I mean, I mean, talk about, I talked about bravery before and you talked about hope and we've talked about joy. And I mean, I think we should, I think it's, it's appropriate that we end on finding joy because of lots of reasons, including the title, but it's so magnificent. And I, I want to, I know Jen wants to talk about it too. So, but I just think that there is something so powerful about the relationship between Desta and Elias. And is that how I pronounce both of those names? Desta, yes. I say Elias, but that's because I speak English. I say every name in Spanish. (laughs) Well, then it's Elias. Let me say it again. There's something so powerful about the relationship between Desta and Elias because Desta is Dominican-American, and it's set in Ethiopia, and Elias is an Ethiopian and thinking about moving um, because he's been offered an opportunity to move to America. Um, but Dest is a relief worker working in Ethiopia, and he sort of has this, like, tragic, this, like, kind of tragic story about his father and his childhood that's kind of tied up in Ethiopia, and he's hesitant to be there. So there's this really interesting intersection between a character who isn't sure that he wants, but he's there for for however long, a month, several months, right? And um, he and he gets there, and he he has to sort of recenter him, like find himself again, and also somehow he's he's able to help. Elias find himself too through this the immigrant experience the the view of the immigrant and I think that the way that you have painted this this idea of like the the way an immigrant view the way the immigrant view can change the native view for lack of a better word is really just so powerful and I love it Thank you. I love that book. That was the first book that I started to write. Oh, I didn't know that. But it came out so much later, right? Tell everyone about Ethiopia and you. Yeah. Yeah, so I wrote that book because I lived in Ethiopia for about five years. And I and I have a very deep connection to it. I, I do call it the homeland of my heart. I have a deep connection to that country. It was, we moved there like a month after he had gotten married. We left. Two years later, we came back when our daughter was four months old and we lived there for like another three and a half years. So we love it there. And I've always thought it was a very romantic place. Um, it's beautiful, but it's also, it. you never lose the sense that people don't really know Ethiopia. They think they know Ethiopia because what they know is the images of the hungry children. Damn, and, and yeah, and like nobody realizes there was a monarchy there until like 1972, and that there's literally like a Camelot, there's castles, there was like palaces, and there's a, it was one of the emirates, 
Um, so for long, like one of the series cities in Ethiopia was one of the um, Emirates. So it's a fascinating country and beautiful. And I've always thought it was a great setting for romance. And and also thinking about living as an expat, right? I lived as an expat for a long time and all the different ways that culture mixes when you're living in a place where like Addis Ababa is the seat of the African Union. So every embassy in the world has some kind of presence in Addis because it's the seat of the African Union. So literally like the tiniest country has some kind of consulate there. And then there's also these embassies, which I talk about in the book, the land that were land grants that the King Menelik gave like the UK has an embassy that still has like tigers running around. <laughs> there's still tigers running around sure. this fucking embassy. Sure. It's humongous. <laughs> there's a golf course. <laughs> there's an entire like I, we had a few friends who were diplomats and lived in the compound, and it's huge. There's a golf course. There was a zoo, and there's still like lines the are English, like loose they love their there. zoos. <laughs> Listen, That's true. They really do. They love a. They love an animal. <laughs> there are still leopards running loose in this fucking embassy. Is that big? And so, like, I just really felt like it was like it's a fascinating place, and it's also one of those places that has like this like mystical feel to it, and and like being able to talk about the fact that it's it's same sex relationships are illegal in Ethiopia and what i really wanted to talk about in that book with Elias character specifically and something that's important to me to say in my books is that immigrants have really complicated relationships with their home that it's a place you love and sometimes you feel that doesn't love you back and that doesn't mean that you don't have faith faithfulness to it that you don't have loyalty to it that you don't want to See it be the version of it that you wish it was. And I think that that's what's so perfect about the way that you write it for because Elias discovers it again, right? Through the eyes of a foreigner, of Desta, right? And so you and there is a very real sense, I mean, to bring it back around to what we were talking about at the beginning, like I think all the time about the fact that my dad left Italy in like 1961 and lived here for 50 some odd years. And he, um, and he talked when he would talk about Italy, it was always with this like reverence, but also there was always this undertone of like, but he didn't stay. So like, there's something up and that, the amount of work that we did as when we would go back to Italy, the way that we saw it was transformational for him. I think like it it was healing for him to see us, you know, walk up the hill and like admire the castle on the hill in Verona where he was from and like ask the story and have him just be able to like tell it without any of the baggage. And that's what, resonates so much for me in this book. Well, and what I wanted to ask you to talk about, because I've heard you say this, and then it was funny because I then, like, saw some reviews of the book that said, I wished I'd had um, Elias's point of view. And you, I've heard, maybe it was just, like, in a conversation with us, you talked about, like, why you didn't do that. And so I thought maybe, like, that would be a good place um, 
like I'd like to maybe hear you talk about on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I like it's a first person point of view only from Desta Joy's um, point of view. And Desta Joy actually knew someone named Desta Joy, by the way. Desta is Joy in Amaric, and then his name is Desta Joy. And I had a friend whose name was Desta Joy and was born in Ethiopia to American parents, which I was like, that's, I was like, I'm going to steal this name for something. So. <laughs> They're in Australia right now, happily married. Um, so the reason why I chose to do it all from Desta's point of view is because A, I'm writing two gay men. I am not a gay man. And so I already feel a responsibility to try to be careful with, and I do believe like, especially with own voices, when you are exploring things that are like traumatic in ways that you just can't get close enough, I feel like to me, I don't want to do something or, or, or say something in a book that, um, is not appropriate, that it could be harmful. And with Elias, because I know what it is to be someone that is, you know, bi in a country where it's not okay to be bi. Like, but I don't know what it's like to be bi in a country where like you could get arrested and jailed, like, and go to prison or be beaten or be, um, you know, physically in danger in like real ways. I don't know what that's like. And I felt like I really didn't want to get into Elias's head because that was a place where I would have to have gone. And I didn't know if I could do that respectfully. And so that's why I made the choice of keeping everything from Dessa's point of view, because Dessa's point of view, even though I'm not a man, I am a queer Dominican woman who was working in Ethiopia as a relief worker. So I feel like I do, and his experience is very close to mine. So I, I thought that I could manage that um, better. And also like my perception of what an Ethiopian person is, right? Because I was seeing, like, I fell in love with that country and I felt like I could render that well. My, my going there and being like, this place is absolutely amazing. And these people are absolutely amazing. And I think that's something I could do well. I didn't know if I could be Elias. I'm glad you like the book. It's like, I love it. Probably the one that I like the most. I love it. That I've written. You told me about this book. It feels like a million years before it came out. And I wanted it desperately. The, I think we probably told this story in the food episode, but... <laughs> Adriana walked up to me after an event somewhere and was like, I was like, I'm writing a food truck romance. And I was like, ah, oh yeah, strand. Um, and then, uh, and, but then we became friendly and you told me about this and I am just, uh, it's, it's a great book. It's great. I'm glad it's out there. Traditional publishing was just not ready for it. I had to self-publish it. I wish I could say I was surprised, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's fine. <laughs> well, but you know what? This is why when self-publishing is like a gift, right? It's a way to get it out into the world. Yeah, this is, it's such, it's a book that surely resonates with so many people and is so powerful. Um, Yeah, but talk about sort of really nailing that, the bravery and the joy. I mean, ugh, it's great. Um, so that said, we've listed a lot of books. Is there anything, I think that's really a great, it's a great book to end on, but if there's something that we've missed, then I want to make sure we we've said it. so much. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. Um, 
Um, okay, so we are that is the end of the episode. <laughs> um, wait, so what are we doing? It's um a week to the election. There is a phone bank on Saturday. We are calling Ohio. Um because we want to make sure that there is plenty of joy on November 4th. Plenty of things to celebrate. Um, we are very grateful to Adriana for donating books to the phone bank um, and for spending time on the phone bank. Um, and we want you guys to join us if you're not doing anything. I know it's Halloween, so if you have kids and costumes or whatever, that's fine. But we'll be there. And just also thank you to everyone who's been phone banking with us. Um, I think there's so many, it's like we're really in the final stretch of what has felt like a really long time. And I am really grateful because knowing that we were doing this all together made me keep doing it. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so you can find Adriana. Adriana, where can everybody find you? Um, you can find me at Adriana Herrera Romance. Dot com and Instagram. I'm on Instagram a lot. Yeah, it's at Ladriana underscore Herrera. That's right. Um, and you can find her books wherever books are sold. Um, look, everyone, independent bookstores are really struggling right now. Um, they are the the word is uh, October is the new December. That's what I'm I'm hearing is the like catchphrase, but I assume it will soon become November is the new December. So if you are looking to buy books, um, consider buying them from your local indie or from one of the indies that we love. We'll uh, list some below, but we are we always list um, bookshop.org links to books that you can find there, um, or you can find this book, Finding Joy. You can find it at Barnes and Noble, right? Yeah. It's on bookshop.org. Oh, great. So we'll put links in show notes. Um, Also, you can find us online at betamates.net, where you can find music and transcripts and all sorts of fun stuff. Pins, bags, merch, T-shirts. But you can't find that pink lady jacket. (laughs) I guess we have to design it now that we have some five-timers coming up. I mean, (laughs) we can postpone the (laughs) five-time. We need at least a sweater. (laughs) All right. uh, Adriana, we love you. You know we love you. We love your face. And thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, Jen and Sarah. This is Morgan in the Pacific Northwest. I'm calling in to talk about a book that blooded me. Um, So I started reading romance back in high school when I raided my mom's bookshelf and read a lot of Jude Devereaux, uh, Black Lion included. I took a little bit of a break in college except for um, the whole series of Outlander. And once I was out of college, I started getting back into romance and did that through um, Highlander historicals. And one of the first ones I picked up was Never Seduce a Scot by Maya Banks. Um, it, this is just the sweetest book. I have a very long list of bookmarked scenes and moments that I love to go back to. Um, but it's basically a um, an arranged marriage amongst uh, two rival clans. A little bit of enemies to lovers, um, and Eveline, the heroine, is uh, they perceived as touched, uh, so she's she's mute, and sometimes she's engaged, and sometimes she's totally aloof. Um, 
and it's later revealed that uh, Eveline is deaf and she can read lips. And from my perspective, it was handled really well. Um, I, in the end, Maya Banks says her husband actually has a hearing condition and that's how she based Eveline's condition off of. Um, but what I really liked and kind of set the foundation for a story element that I really like even now is that her secret is revealed um, pretty early on and it's not a part of the climax, you know. And so once the secret is revealed, Eveline and Graham can move on together and battle some external conflicts. Um, so that became a, a uh, itch that I like to be scratched now. <laughs> um, but it is a wonderful book and I would highly recommend it. Thanks so much for all you do. Really enjoy the podcast. Thanks.